Hi everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I am in transit. I am on the way from Kenya to Egypt via a lockup in southeast London, where we've got thousands of copies of my new book on this day in history, and we are sending them out to anyone who takes out an annual subscription to historyit.tv. So busy times. Don't forget, the January sale is on. If you type POD5, this is only available to people who listen to this podcast. If you type POD5, P-O-D-5, into the historyhit.tv website where it asks you for a voucher, you will get the first 30 days for free and then you'll get five months for just five pounds, euros or dollars for the whole of the five months. That takes you through to the long, idle days of summer, through these dark, miserable winter months with the tiniest of outlays, just five pounds, euros or dollars. It's our craziest, craziest giveaway price yet. We're doing that because you're listening to this podcast and it's exclusive to you guys here on the pod. Speaking of the pod, what's going on today? Well, today we've got a, you know what, this combines several of my great passions. One is gigantic infrastructure project designed to transport passengers from A to B at extraordinary speed. Yes, HS2, the high speed to the rail line that's going up the spine of England from the capital city, London, to Birmingham, England's second city. Uh, and it's going to go even further north, thank goodness, very, very soon. And not only does it allow us to whiz around the country at top speed, at breakneck speed, without the need to get into some terrible automobile, but it's also producing vast amounts of archaeology because they are digging one hell of a trench. Yes, they are. They're digging a trench along the length of much of the country and there's all sorts of interesting stuff going to come out of it. Now, today, I'm going to my good friends at the wonderful MOLA, Museum of London Archaeology. You'll have heard them on the podcast before. They were the ones behind the Shakespeare's Theatre in Shoreditch. They were also the ones two years ago who taught me through the plague skeletons. And I've been very glad to be reunited with Mike Henderson. He's the senior osteologist at MOLA. He was the man who taught me through the skeleton in which they'd identified plague. Uh, but he is now going to talk me through some more bodies that have been found. He's joined by Helen Wass, who's the head of heritage at HS2. What a fantastic job. She's in charge of all the heritage that they find on this giant adventure they're embarked on. One child, one teacher, one book, and one pen can change the world. Hello everybody, I'm standing in the Museum of London Archaeology offices. I've been here before, last time I was talking plague, this time I'm talking 18th century bodies. Two of them are lying out in front of me now, skeletons, and we're going to be talking about those in a second. But first, I want to talk to you, Helen, because the reason we're all here is because of this giant infrastructure programme that you're in charge of the heritage part of. Yes, HS2 is a really exciting opportunity for the country to understand its past and for us to tell the story of a nation. So these two are from a London site. Can you give me a sense of, obviously you're driving this great big high-speed rail through one of the busiest, most historic cities on earth. What, it, what are you finding? Well, here at uh, the St. James Burial Ground, just outside Euston, we'll be extending the Euston Station for the new high-speed platforms. And St. James Burial Ground is, is there. It was partly taken by the railway station when it was ex uh, expanded in the 19th century and we are going to be excavating some 40 odd thousand individuals at a time when London was growing and changing and great economic change was happening. 
40,000 individuals. How on earth are you... I mean, how do you have the resources to do that? Is there a triage? Do you look at a body and think, not that interesting, but this one looks fascinating? I mean, that's incredible. The excavation of particularly post-medieval cemeteries actually happens a little bit more regularly than I think people understand. And we have the Museum of London Archaeology and uh, Headland Archaeology uh, working with us to excavate this cemetery. So we'll be investigating a portion of the cemetery. But we have... We're expecting to find, like I said, about 40,000. The whole cemetery originally was some 60,000, but it was designed for only 16,000. So you can imagine the intensity of, it, of its use. And the archaeologists will be investigating, you know, the stories of all these Londoners. So tell me about the St. James Burial Site. I've never heard of it. Was this a, a cemetery as recently as last year? Or is this something that was turned into a public space or even built on? Well, the cemetery is very late 1700s and it was an extension to St James Piccadilly, which people might be familiar with in central London. And so this was an extension to their burial ground. It was in use till the mid-19th century, so an intensive period of use for about 60 years. And then it was closed when the Metropolitan Burial Act uh, came into force around about the mid-1850s. And then actually it got turned into a park like many cemeteries in London. And at this time, cemeteries moved out of London. And so you have like magnificent seven cemeteries, such as Highgate and Kensal Green Cemetery, where you had those garden cemeteries. And then this just became a public park. Why did they close the cemetery? Was it full? It was basically full. And the Metropolitan Burial Act was trying to get people out of burying people in central London. Because when this cemetery started, it was really quite rural London. We think of it as central London now. And... Obviously, the intensity of burials meant that it got very full very quickly. Then the Metropolitan Burial Act came in to say, we don't want to bury people that intensely in central London. We'll move them out to the suburbs, create new cemeteries. And then, like I said, this one got converted to a park. So when you're sitting in the boardroom, you're head of heritage, multi-billion pound project. When you say, great news, uh, chief executive and board, we've discovered another massive cemetery. Let's spend the next two years going through, meticulously going through every single body. Do they all slam their heads into the desk? You know, they don't. We have known about this cemetery for a very, very long time. And these works are very much planned. We're part of what they call the enabling works of the railway. So the massive archaeological programme that will be undertaken up and down the route on an unprecedented scale is happening now. This, the work in the St James Burial Ground is part of that. And then we work with our contractors, people like the Museum of London and Headland, to excavate carefully, respectfully. You know, all due dignity, care and respect is afforded to these individuals so that we can get as much scientific and interesting information out of them and tell the stories about who they were. So you've got tens of thousands of bodies coming out. I mean, is this a huge, is this the biggest sample we've got of bodies from the, from the mid-19th century? This is very much the biggest sample that we'll ever have archaeologically investigated for a post-medieval cemetery. Brilliant. And the man doing that is friend of the podcast. We've been on, you've been on before. Mike, good to see you. Hello. Um, now, last time we were on, I'm glad to see you haven't got the plague. Last time we were on, you were assuring me that the, the plague could not survive in, um, in bones. And turns out you're right. Yep, yep. Thankfully. <laughs> um, tell me about the two skeletons that we've got here. Thanks. Thanks to HS2. So we've got two skeletons here from the Euston excavations and they sort of both present two different pictures of what was going on during this time. So this was a, a really significant 
period in, in London's history, London was moving from a pre-industrial city to an industrial city. And with that came massive population growth. And that put pressure on resources, sanitation, there was overcrowded living conditions. And that helped the spread of disease. And that meant that the population was really suffering from, from this growth to some extent. And so we've, we see evidence of various different kinds of diseases in, in different levels of, of prevalence, things like infectious diseases, trauma, but also things that we don't always see so much in, in earlier time periods. So here we have a, a male who was found in a, a really well-preserved, intact coffin. So you would expect the whole extent of the, the body that remains to have survived. But as you can see, he's missing some, some elements. The lower legs aren't there. The arms aren't there. And there's also an intrusive part of the skull from an, another individual, and that's been sewn. So that intrusive person had undergone a craniotomy to, to examine the internal aspects of the brain. And when we look at the rest of the skeleton, we, we can see some other interesting marks as well. So the lower legs are gone, as I say, but the, the femurs, the thigh bones have been sewn, and the, the shoulder, the clavicle, has been sewn as well. So that suggests that perhaps this person underwent some kind of medical investigation. Um, if it was an autopsy, we would expect that, that his crania was sewn as well, but those, those marks aren't present, the skull is intact. So this might suggest that this person was, was dissected. What was really interesting about this, this burial as well was that as well as the, the skeletal remains, we found this pink substance distributed around the coffin and there was a really thick cylindrical pink shape sort of in the region of the spine and traveling all the way up the length of the spine and in, into the into the skull and what we think this might have been was some kind of wax or resin that was injected into the circulatory the, the blood system to sort of emphasize and display how, how it worked so that might suggest that this person was used as a sort of teaching aid, an anatomical teaching aid to, to learn about the human body. So as medical science was advancing during this time period, this is a really good example of, of how surgical techniques and investigations to learn about the, the human body were evolving. So uh, talk me through. So mid-19th century, we're no longer in, in the world of using criminals' bodies or, or bear, digging people up, you know, stealing corpses out of graves to do the medical research. Yes, so an Act of Parliament was passed in the 1830s known as the Anatomy Act. So previously, surgeons obtained their remains to, to practice dissection and anatomy, usually from, from criminals, so people that had been hung for, for murder. Post the Anatomy Act, the corpses of the, the unclaimed dead could be used. So and this is where you get the poor from workhouses being used for, for dissection. So that does lead some, into some questions about where where this person may have come from. Why were they dissected? Were, were they sick? Did they have an illness? And then they were in a hospital and that's part of that process? Or was this specifically for, for an anatomical teaching? This body was, was obtained for, for, for that purpose. So lots of interesting questions revolving this individual. And Later down the line, when we can secure a date for this individual, it'll be really interesting to see if they were post or, or pre the Anatomy Act. What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a nectar mattress. 
as well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Have we got any evidence of, of any illness that survives in the bone that we can see so far that might have led to their death? No, there's no, no signs so far. So if they had had some kind of nasty infection like TB or, or syphilis or something like that, that would leave the traces on the bone. But they tend to be quite long-standing infections. So sometimes when we have remains that don't have any lesions at all, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were a healthy individual. That might mean that they, they died really quickly of a, a chronic, chronic disease. But this guy, is this a man or a woman? This is a male. He's looking all right then, you think? There's no obvious cause of death. And what are his teeth like? And his teeth are really good, really good condition. So teeth do tend to survive better than the bones often. They're a bit of a denser material. Um, but you can see that the bones are all intact. There's little degradation of them. And that really reflects the, the good survival of the coffin. The bones are also a sort of beige, off-white colour. And that suggests that, the, you know, that there wasn't any staining from the surrounding soil or anything like that. Unlike this other skeleton over here, let's walk over here. This one is uh, very, very dark in colour. Now, why is that? So in contrast to the, the previous skeleton, this was from a coffin that had heavily degraded over time in the ground. So the wood only really survived as sort of organic staining. And you might have seen some of the coffin nails or the iron fittings that may have survived in, in the ground. But the actual the wood, the bulk of the coffin had, had long since eroded. And because of that, the bone was exposed to, to water that filtered through the ground, but also the soil, so it stained the bone in this kind of dark, dark brown colour. And also that means that the survival of the bone isn't quite as good. So you can see some of the bones are broken or fragmented and some of the ends of the bones are eroded. And that's just the natural process of decay after a body's been buried in the ground over time. So the other one was interesting because it seems to have been used as a, a teaching tool or, or a research tool by clinicians. Uh, why why have you chosen to pull this one up? I thought this is a really good example of one of the more subtle bone changes that we see that reflects a, a pathological process. So kind of throughout the body, there's this distribution of very fine, circular, punched out lesions. So there's a large one at the side of the skull and then throughout the vertebrae and then in the, the pelvis and also affecting the ribs. So something like this suggests a neoplastic disease like metastatic carcinoma, so a, a cancer or multiple myeloma, so something that's spread through the blood system to different parts of the body. And there's no or little remodelling. They're, they're very sharp, defined lesions. So that suggests a fast-acting process and that the person probably died quite soon after these lesions had spread around the body. Yeah, now that you mention it, they're very, very clear here on the pelvis. I wouldn't have noticed it if you hadn't said but then the spinal column, the ribs... And then the side of the skull. I mean, the, the, were the last few months of this person's life unimaginable torment? If this was a cancer that had spread, it would have probably affected their immune system. So they would have become weaker and weaker and more, more susceptible to other illnesses and things like that. And the, the lesion on the side of the skull, though, is actually quite a large hole. But has some of that started to regrow as well? Yeah, so that's one of the kind of indicators that this isn't due to degradation this isn't 
post-mortem damage, we'd call it, because the bone can only change in two ways. You can either grow new bone or bone can erode. And it's the distribution of those lesions that help us determine what's going on. But as you rightly say, there's some regrowth around the margins. It's like a sort of honeycomb-like structure. So that suggests that this lesion was remodeling in response to the, the, the disease. What else are we able to tell? I mean, so drawing, going back up a level, um, what, what else can we tell about what London's population was eating, how they were living, how long they were living in, in the middle of the 19th century? So as I say, this was a really significant time in, in London's history as, as it was moving and growing and population was moving into the city to feed this, feed this growth. And we can see evidence of this in, in different forms. So we can look at the teeth that might tell us about people's diet and their levels of oral hygiene. Nearly everyone suffers from some kind of dental disease at this period. And this really just reflects kind of high sugary, carbohydrate, starchy diet that kind of over time erodes the teeth. We can look at trauma patterns that might suggest evidence of occupation, things like that. We can look at evidence of infectious diseases that might reflect the close overcrowded conditions that people were living in, but also exposure to increasing levels of pollution. So lesions under the surfaces of the ribs or in the nasal cavities might suggest respiratory and chronic respiratory infections that that may have been responsive to to growing levels of pollution. And sort of linked to that as well, into the children, we may see evidence of bowed deformities in the limbs that may reflect that they were suffering from rickets. So that could Rickets is caused by a lack of vitamin D, and that could partially be dietary related, but most of your vitamin D comes from sunlight. So why weren't they getting enough sunlight? And that could be due to pollution again or or just reoccurring childhood sicknesses that, that kept them indoors. So if I want to understand what life was like for the normal working people of London in the first half of the 19th century, shall I read parliamentary debate? Shall I read Hansard? Shall I read Charles Dickens? Or should I talk to you about what the evidence of their bodies tells us? I think what's really important about archaeology and osteology is the evidence that we have really gives us a, a good picture of what life was like for, for the everyday people. So with this population, we have lots and lots of, of named individuals that we know were buried in the cemetery. And that can give us a plethora of historical information to tie in. But also equally important is that the everyday people that perhaps weren't recorded in history, we can see lots of evidence about about their lives and how they lived and how they died. And what's exciting about HS2 is it goes from London to England's second city, Birmingham. And so presumably there's going to be lots of stuff on the way. And then is there an equivalent burial site in Birmingham? Could you compare the, the Londoners and the, the Brummies? That's totally what we're going to do because we do have a comparable cemetery at the Birmingham end, uh, right near the, the new station there. And being able to tell the story of another major city during this time of great change and having that compare and contrast data, it's going to be the biggest cemetery, uh, we call it Park Street Cemetery, outside of London. So again, for High Speed 2, another another big first. And it'll be really great to be able to tell that story of, of, of Birmingham during that industrial period. Can you go via, can you just change the tracks via a few battlefields that I'd like you to excavate? I'm sure it's very, you have great flexibility as to the eventual uh, path you're going to take. Well, since as you mentioned it, we do go through the Battle of Edgecote, which is a War of the Roses battlefield in the 15th century. And so that was a really uh, exciting, exciting battle. And we, we just kind of clipped the edge of the area that 
historic England has designated, but it's you know it's a big open field, and already we've got people researching and investigating that site. Love it. That's fantastic. Um, just might give me one last sense of the importance of the size of the sample, and what do you think? I mean, this is. This is this is not finding a couple of bodies and and then extrapolating that. This is this is a sample that could be you know peer reviewed in a medical journal about the population about the health and longevity of an entire population, right? Yeah, that that's exactly right. One of the key things about this assemblage is just the the sheer size of it. So when we think about modern medical studies or demographic studies, they use tens of thousands of individuals. In archaeology, often assemblages number you know, less than a hundred or, or sometimes a couple of hundred. And we can still say meaningful things about those those populations. But when we're dealing with thousands of individuals, we can really start to look at key patterns and trends, ages at death, mortality profiles and disease prevalence rates. And we can use these to compare to different time periods and also cemeteries both around the country, but also throughout Europe and the world to see to see how this population was evolving over time. Have there been any big surprises for you yet, or is it too early to say? It's it's still early days, so we haven't started to bring the data together yet to start to see any of those meaningful patterns. But but yeah, that's certainly to come. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to coming back and chatting to you about that. Good luck with it all. Thank you very much. And good luck getting HS2 going. Thank you very much. I feel we have the history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. One child, one teacher, one book and one pen can change the world. He tells us what is possible, not just in the pages of history books, but in our own lives as well. I have faith in you.